Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. So join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. You're listening to Great Women in Compliance on the Compliance Podcast Network. See, told you. There you go. <laughs> Hi. You're listening to Great Women in Compliance on the Compliance Podcast Network with Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine. I'm Lisa Fine, and today I'm speaking with Alejandra Montenegro Almonte. Alejandra is a member and the vice chair of the International Department at Miller & Chevalier. At Miller, she focuses on design and implementation of risk-based internal compliance programs for companies all over the world. She is currently a monitor on behalf of a regulatory agency in Massachusetts and has served in a leadership role in a monitorship in an FTPA disposition. Before joining Miller, Alejandra was a general counsel for the Americas at Gate Group and an associate at Wild Gotchella Mansions. If either of those places sound familiar to you as a regular listener, it's because I have been lucky enough to work with Alejandra twice, and I am so lucky about that. Alejandra led the compliance committees for LATAM, the U.S. and Canada at Gate Group, and I saw firsthand how she moved the initiatives forward and collaborated with some very diverse client bases. And in terms of recognition, she is one of DCA Live's Emerging Women Leaders in Private Practice for 2019 and LatinVex Latin America's one of the top 100 female lawyers in FCPA and fraud. I can personally say that Alejandra had and has a holistic approach to ethics and compliance even before that word was trendy. And I saw it when we worked together on compliance-related investigations, trainings, and risk assessments. And since I know Alejandra, two fun facts before she tells you more about her background. One, for someone who worked in the airline industry and does so many global projects, she just really does not like flying, and she definitely has the best handwriting I've ever seen from an attorney. And with that in mind, let's hear more from you, Alejandra, about your experiences, your career, and how you got into it. Hi, Lisa. I have to say it's wonderful to be able to talk to you, and the privilege of working with you twice was all mine. Thanks. I'll take it. (laughs) Thank you for having me. So, yeah, how did you get into compliance? Um, Not a straight line for me at all. I started out my career, as you know, in international arbitration and litigation, and a couple of years in, started really working more in the international investigation space, particularly focused on FCPA matters and sanctions. And within that, we would always make recommendations related to remediation and to prevent issues that we saw in investigations from recurring. And I started to get a little bit of taste for the compliance pra- for compliance practice there. But it really was when I joined Gate and was tasked as one of my very first projects with helping the company roll out a more robust, to use an overused word, FCPA compliance program, sanctions compliance program, where I started to see the implementation and design of compliance come to life. And that's really where I fell in love with it. And it was the, you know, often feeling like you're fitting a, you know, square peg in a round hole or whatever the saying might be (laughs) to uh, make compliance work in cadence with the business, which very early in my compliance career taught me is the most effective way to build a compliance program is not to layer it on or making making it an add-on procedure, but to really make it sync up with business procedures. Yeah. And I and I saw you do that as well, integrating into the business. Now, 
as you've gone forward now back in private practice and you're building and assessing compliance programs, what do you look at first and what do you see as some of the more common red flags? The thing I look at first is what compliance controls the client already has in place because they're there, whether you label them as corruption compliance programs or not. Most companies are going to have policies and procedures and accounting controls that help over oversee and manage where money flows from point one to point B, right? Point one to point two. Um, so I look at that first, is what is the company already working with and how can we leverage the systems they already have in place to work for the company in the, in the anti-corruption space? That's number one. So a red flag for me would be if there's very little in that department. Also, I do strongly believe in a true commitment to compliance. So when I'm working with a company and I ask for culture and tone and conduct at the top and what structures, governance structures, the company has in place to truly have an independent oversight over compliance? How is the company resourcing it? How is the company investing in compliance on a day-to-day basis? Absent those touch points, I start to see some red flags. Okay. Yeah. And we'll talk a little bit about that in terms of some of your work in LATAM, because you have a strong presence there and background, but you also work in domestic practice and you built that as well. And some of those things you just talked about, how do you manage to, to look at those, get involved with them? And what, what do you see um, that you know, are core principles in, in both in, throughout the world as well as there? And what do you see given some of the cultural differences? Because you just mentioned culture and culture is a challenge. Culture is a challenge. And I really love that question because I think until you asked it, I hadn't really answered that question for myself. And to me, my domestic practice and my LATAM practice both inform the other. So having the cultural context of the work that I've done in Latin America, for instance, where typically you're working with companies that are newer to compliance, who are truly turning the tide within their countries, within their industries, within their companies to build real compliance programs, helps me work with companies in the U.S. who might similarly right, be struggling with developing compliance programs, but also companies who are trying to break through regions that they operate in and may not know how to localize their compliance programs or might be frustrated with why certain regions may not be as integrated into compliance programs, I can help literally translate that for (laughs) U.S. clients. And then for Latin American clients, the experience that, you know, I have here in the U.S. and that we have as, you know, legal compliance profession here, there are so many lessons learned, as you know, Lisa, of what we have seen, right? What works, what doesn't work. That, you know, I hope that historical experience helps me help U.S. uh, Latin American companies get there faster. So we can, you know, why reinvent it? We've already lived it here. And again, in a localized way that makes sense culturally, help companies learn from our lessons. Yeah, and I think if, with, when it comes to uh, Latin America and Latin, the countries are very diverse. And sometimes I think when we talk about it, um, people forget that within even there, the regional differences can be very, very significant. 
um, just like state differences or when companies call, you know, North America, it's the U.S., comma, and Canada. So. Right. <laughs> yes. No, and that's an incredibly important distinction that, you know, we certainly make sure, you know, I like to say, you know, have the, the, the language fluency, but we also have a cultural fluency and understanding. And I'm speaking about myself and my team at Miller of really understanding the differences between Argentina and Colombia, right? <laughs> or <laughs> Nicaragua and Honduras. They are very <laughs> different cultural contexts generally. And certainly where Latin American countries are in their evolution of anti-corruption law and enforcement and compliance. Yeah. So um, talking about that too, or talk about two other different cultures, because um, you've gone from law firm to in-house and now back at a law firm. Can you talk about the, and a lot of times, a lot of people we've spoken with don't usually go back, which is a tribute mm-hmm. to you and to Miller, but can you talk about, you know, the, those transitions twice? Yes. Well, you know better than anyone that I never thought I'd be back in private practice. So it really is a testament <laughs> to Miller <laughs> um, that, that I'm here. Um, I think, you know, the first transition going from private practice to in-house was humbling. Mm-hmm. You're used to being the external counsel that clients come to to save the day. Yeah. When you're in-house, and our in-house audience will probably recognize this, you're not really saving the day. You're a burden. You're a roadblock. You can very easily be perceived as that. Um, so that was humbling point number one. I'm going to tell you point. one thing that our humbling points in common was I remember uh-huh. when I started in, at Wild at our beginnings of our career and things would come to you and you would look at it and say, I don't know how anyone could ever get into this mess. <laughs> how does this happen? And then once you're at an organization, not only do you understand how things, you understand the people, the personality and the complexity of everything. But I just remember being like, I'm now the person I, that I sat there and mocked or made fun yes. of. Yes. No, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, and, and I think that's something when I talk about transitioning back to, to private practice that I'll pick back up on. Right. But I think it's, it's also humbling to have non-lawyers. And at Gate, we had the privilege, Lisa, of working with some really brilliant people mm-hmm. to be the ones to ask you the question that you hadn't necessarily thought of because you're not in the weeds in the business. So to push you not just academically in your legal advice, but truly, and I you know, now sometimes cringe when I hear the word practical because I think until you've been in the in-house chair, right, what practical legal advice takes on a very different tone. Right. <laughs> um, so to really push you to remain consistent and steadfast, obviously, in what the legal and compliance answer and path has to be, but to demonstrate some level of humility and flexibility in helping the company get there was was truly remarkable. And I do remember one of the first questions I was asked before I joined Gate in my interview was, how comfortable are you being 80% comfortable? I said, not at all. I'm never comfortable being 80% comfortable. And <laughs> I thought, surely I wasn't going to get the job. Um, because the idea there is you're working so fast, so fast in getting the right answer to your business. And you don't have the luxury of having a team of associates and colleagues at the firm to make sure you leave no stone unturned. Um, that was probably one of the biggest challenges that, that I had to overcome is not to have that knee-jerk reaction to say, let me go research it, right? But really trust 
what you do know, your instincts, um, and what you're able to get to get to the right place. And then you just become like thriving in it. It's kind of going, <laughs> kind of like, wait, now, now I've got to find all this research. I need to be the one who, you know, makes the value, <laughs> the value add. Exactly. So. Exactly. Um, so coming back to, to private practice, shockingly, um, I think it was, it was that it was really taking the importance of not just navigating the law, but really understanding that to be a good external counsel, you have to truly understand the business. And I think that's particularly true in the compliance space. You really have to get into the weeds. I had someone, I was doing a risk assessment not that long ago, I was speaking to somebody in the internal controller's office and they said, wow, we've never had a lawyer ask us so many in the weed questions. And one is because I really miss geeking out with business people about it. <laughs> but two is just knowing intuitively you have to ask those questions or, you know, a small miss can be, can be a big miss. Yeah. But I do like having the luxury of being having more time to research (laughs) and to to think through issues and to, um, yeah, Yeah, it's, it, it is interesting. And I think, um, one of the things I think we both saw back at gate and other places, we took a lot of tours of airline catering facilities and to this day, both within the business and other people, I liked seeing the dish machines because I saw how that was a difference from place to place. And the fact that like, I actually had an opinion on dish machines, I think (laughs) helped me build relationships more than any skill in some ways I had, because also I think caring about the business part is, is good. Um, you know, and it, it really genuinely, if you, you're interested, whether you're outside or inside, I think that is a really important point. Um, you know, I think, yeah. No, I think just your dish machine example prompted a, a thought too of what I was able to bring into the compliance practices. Obviously, substantively, what I mostly focus on is anti-corruption compliance. But working at GATE and having to advise the company on food safety, on employee safety, on OSHA compliance, right? All of the, you know, the panoply of compliance issues that we oversaw, HR compliance, right? Harassment, discrimination. I began to understand that the compliance rubric structure hallmarks that we talk about in the anti-corruption space, your tone at the top, your you know autonomous oversight, your policies and procedures, your trainings, all of the hallmarks really are applicable to compliance across the board, right? I mean, think yeah. about it. We had our, our leadership talking about the importance of food safety and not compromising that just to get food on the plane faster, right? It's the same thing we're talking about in the anti-corruption space, right? Don't be unethical. Don't pay bribes just to get the deal done. Um, and really, I mean, I could go on for hours about this, but it, it, it's really helped me understand that we can branch out our niche compliance practices into all different areas. Yeah. No, I think, it, I think it's great. And I think then I guess it's nice to have some more time to research now, like you said before, too, I, when it is a completely new topic, somebody used to come to your desk in, in, in house, and I still get that, or virtually asking you a question, they expect you're going to know because you went to law school. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Whatever it is. Um, so, you know, that's great. I think with both in all of these roles, one of the things about you that is just great is, you know, that you have always, I've really loved the way you 
you know, have looked at the business to both make ethical decisions and work in alignment with what business goals are. Um, you know, I think, again, that's why I said you were holistic before it was trendy because- Well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, she's ahead of the trends in many ways, but uh, it's in particular, you know, how, you know, how do you give that advice? And back to this theme of different countries and diversity, um, you know, how, does that change how you have your, go to your audience on explaining or helping you know, get to the right results? It doesn't change the substance of the advice, but it certainly changes how I package it. Mm-hmm. One of the things I learned, just going back to the humbling aspect of going in-house, one of the things that I learned um, in giving advice to the business is if I was giving advice that was seen as non-business friendly, right, out the gate, there was a process of mutual education where I was educating the business onto why this mattered from a legal and a compliance standpoint, and the business was educating me as to why the solution I was offering was not optimal to meet business goals. And obviously, we're not talking about the clear, you know, the times when I had to say absolutely categorically no, right? We're talking about how to get to the right place in the in the best way, um, in the legal and compliant way. And through those conversations of being educated by the business, you start to see where is the core interest that the business is focused on and how can I speak to why the advice that I'm giving is going to protect that interest. So to give a super simple example, right, you're working on a commercial contract. Obviously, the salesperson wants to get this done and they want to get it done quickly. The way that I would communicate why compliance clauses, like an anti-corruption clause, for example, was important, uh, or an indemnification provision was important, right, where they saw as roadblocks, was to tell them, at the end of the day, what I'm doing is protecting the value of the deal that you're trying to close, and walk them through all of the things that could go wrong. And I would sell, you know, I was, you, you heard me say this before, I'm in the business of seeing dead people, right? Like I'm here to talk to you about the things that you might not be seeing within reason, right? I mean, I learned not to go to the least likely of the risks, but to talk about the risks that, to your point, just happen in the normal course of business, because you're right, Lisa. I mean, we, we did see very often how did companies get to this place, and now I can tell you how companies get to the place right. where, you know, then they need to call external counsel. And nine times out of 10, it's not intentional. It's not with, you know, willful disregard to the law. It's because there were small and incremental decisions that were made where maybe there was no one at the table to help them see the dead people. Yeah. Well, I don't actually think about it always as, as dead people. But <laughs> <laughs> um, but I do think about it a lot in the... Um, the everyone is dealing with their daily pressures and everyone may make a little bit of a, just a little bit of a sacrifice that then gets you to the next point. And then you look yes. at it almost like if we're going to, you know, that they're slowly maiming the person along the line when we could have, you know, done surgery sooner. Um, I, mean, I mean, more in the uh, sixth sense, I see that people, not literal maiming of people. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Just to clarify I, to our audience what I'm talking about. No, I knew exactly what you meant. <laughs> Who knows these days with those millennials? <laughs> um, anyway, um, you know, I, I think that that makes a lot of sense. I mean, the, 
you know, how you do that and what you're seeing and the risk, because there are oftentimes the completely, you know, 100% legal, perfect approach that the government will, will love is not feasible to run a business. But there is that whole area in the middle and how to get to the right place and what's risk tolerance is, I mean, I think the biggest challenge that in-house or at law firms you deal with every day. And I will say, I think the gap there has tightened, has really closed. I mean, to the extent that there ever was, right? I mean, the DOJ guidance has said, tailor your program to the risk, right? They they understand that there's going to be some low-level risk that maybe is going to, you know, not be 100% mitigated. But being able to demonstrate that you went through the process, a meaningful process of identifying where those risks are and are able to demonstrate that you allocated your resources to those risks, you get pretty darn close. Yeah. Well, I'm going to turn to one other topic that's really important to me and generally to this podcast, and I know to you as well, is on diversity, um, mm-hmm. diversity in ethics and compliance in business and other things. Um you know, your experience, you're Latina, you, you know, you, you, when you moved to the U.S., I don't think you spoke any English. You were how old? Five? I was four. I was four and a half. So obviously, you know, being an immigrant and with immigrant, you know, in an immigrant family in New Orleans, you know, this has really impacted probably how you view the world, view law and view the importance of diversity. Because so, you know, I just wanted to talk a little bit about that and then, you know, maybe some challenges, issues, advice, you know, that you provide to, to, to all of us. Diversity has been tremendously important to me, and my culture has been something that has defined me since I was a young child. And I think that's, you know, being an immigrant in the 80s in New Orleans, I was the only one pretty much everywhere I went, right, in school. I was the only one in my class. Um, And so there was, I had two options. I could either assimilate fully, blend in or use that unique position to model and to educate others on the Latino experience and the immigrant experience specifically. One of the things that I hated hearing at school, for example, was, oh, but you're an exception. You're different than other Latinos and other immigrants. And that's not a compliment. That was truly offensive to me because I'm no different. But what that demonstrated to me was they had a very biased and prejudicial view of what it meant to be me. Mm -hmm. And so since that moment, it's become so important for me to represent who we are and to be seen and to have my voice heard. And I do say my name, Alejandra Montenegro Almonte, for a reason, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because I literally want to give my community and people who come behind me an, a voice. Yeah. I, however, have never been able to fully pronounce your name appropriately with the right accent. So I, I have been Americanizing it for many years. But you try, which is what I, what I can do. So yes, I mean, that, that has informed how I view the world. And how has it, has it informed your experience in your, your law practice? One hundred percent. It has. Um, I mean, the fact that I'm focusing on Latin America and I've been focused on Latin America, I think, for all but two years of my experience. Um, it's a point of pride for me in, in being able to go back to Latin America and actually work um, with Latin Americans. One of my most proud moments, frankly, was last year I got to go back to Nicaragua 
and give a presentation in Spanish and anti-corruption laws with the U.S. flag and the Nicaraguan flag behind me at the podium. And it took everything in me, you know this well, not to be emotional about it. Um, but it really is a point of pride for me to be able to 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 work in the region, particularly in the space, you know, that 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 we're working in. How about as a woman as well? Have you had any challenges or opportunities? And how do you see that? Because, you know, there can be some, we all have dealt with sexism at some point, and there is some machismo that you may have had to deal with. Um, so dealing with gender bias, both in the U.S. and Latin America, mm -hmm. I've absolutely experienced. And I think in both places, the the core one, and this goes more to microaggressions, I think, right? And it, it's the ways that I am underestimated, right? Mm -hmm. So I walk into a room, I'm a woman, here I'm a Latina, right? Mm -hmm. um, in Latin America, I'm a Latina that grew up in the U.S., right? But there is, there is a certain level of underestimation that I frankly have felt more in the U.S., um, than in Latin America. It's assuming that if I'm a woman, I'm not going to be, you know, as tough or as a Latina. Unfortunately, I have had people imply and sometimes state directly that somehow I haven't earned what I've accomplished in my life because of either, you know, just diversity initiatives or whatever else they may be thinking. Um, I have had people say that to me. Um, it must be easier because of your last name. Like, well, my name isn't a, a I'm not a Kennedy, I'm not a Rockefeller, <laughs> so I don't know what you mean by that. Um, so the, that's probably been the biggest one is just the layers of assumptions that come with my identity when I walk into the door and, and, and say my name. And in, in Latin America, I think while I haven't, truly I haven't experienced directly direct machismo, I am 100% typically the only one, I mean, really the only woman in the room. I visited a law firm not that long ago and they had a picture of all of their partners. Mm -hmm. And I'm looking, I'm like, there, no one really realizes that there's not a man on this wall. I mean, there's not a woman on this wall. <laughs> um, and of course, you know me, I had to say something about it, but um, it's, it's that it's being truly in the only. Yeah. For the I most part. Yeah, as somebody who one of her greatest regrets is not speaking Spanish and has tried to learn, I think that sometimes in terms of my experience working, you know, with native Spanish speakers is that I can't speak the language. And if they're going to, they're going to have to change the whole meeting around you, which they will do. But there's anotherness that starts that's separate from everything else that you're talking about. But there's also a lot of pride. I mean, this is I me. Mean, I'm walking into their space. Um, there is so much pride. And that is the other thing that I've loved being able to do is to practice in my native tongue. Mm -hmm. I mean, really, that just, it's a really point of pride for me. So, um, you know, talking about all this and, and your view on it, why, one, what, why do you think diversity is, is so important? I mean, especially in law firms and in leadership and others. You broaden your perspective, however you want to define diversity, whether it's gender, ethnicity, race, sexual orientation, religion, et cetera, you're going to come to a better decision because just in, in, organically, you're going to have people who are speaking from a certain point of 
experience. Um, and I actually remember at Gate Lisa having conversations when we would talk about, I mean, our kitchens were one of the most diverse places that we had. And I remember some very, very specific conversations um, with our operations folks where, frankly, I didn't even realize I was doing it, but just being in the room and asking questions where in the back of my mind, I was thinking about the Latino worker who might have ling- ling- limited language capability. Right. How do we make integrating that employee better, uh, more easily? And it happens across no matter what room you're in, having different perspectives will get you to a better decision. Yeah. And I've been talking and thinking about that a lot lately when you're for risk assessments and for other things. If everybody is the same, sorry, white guys, white dude with, the, um, you know, at the t- you know, talking about the risks, you're missing the whole rest of the world and your workforce is not the same. Right. So. And I think representation truly, truly matters. And it's incredibly important for me, for a Latina, you know, young adolescent who's thinking, I want to go to law school, but I look around and there isn't anybody that looks like me. There weren't a lot of people that looked like me when, you know, I was in starting my career, but mm-hmm. I had the benefit of having mentors who were black men, black women, white men, white women who gave me a safe space to, to grow. Yeah. Well, you've always done amazing work. So I think that's probably what they were appreciating too. I mean, <laughs> um, one last thing I'd like to ask you before we close off. And that is, you know, if you had one piece of advice either to give to you yourself on the first day or someone else, you know, the thing that you say, I wish I knew then um, this thing, cause it would have saved me some angst. Um, what would that be? The advice that I would give myself is take your five-year plan, rip it up and shred it. <laughs> because, <laughs> because if I had stuck to my five-year plan, my 10-year plan, my 15-year plan, I wouldn't be here. And it was allowing myself to take, I am not the most, the highest risk taker you're ever going to meet. Um, but it was really, really al- yeah, shocking, right? <laughs> Um, it was allowing myself the space to take calculated risks, right? To deviate from what I thought was my path. I was going to be in a law firm and I was going to, you know, work and work and work and, you know, hopefully one day make partner. And it was allowing myself to, one, admit that maybe at that time, it's not exactly what I truly wanted, but just had been hardwired to go for the next thing. Um, but to allow myself the space to explore opportunities that might come up if a door opens, and this is advice I would give to anyone, right? It, if a door opens, just peek. You don't have to walk in. Just peek to see what's there. That's how I ended up at Gate. And frankly, that's how I ended up at Miller. I was not looking to go back to private practice. I didn't talk to any other firms. It was a unique opportunity that presented itself, and I took a leap of faith. And I can I can attest to that, um, remembering you going through and thinking about what you wanted to do and at that point in time. And I think it's turned out great. Um, and, you know, I'm just so thrilled to have known you through this and also to see all the work that you're doing in ethics and compliance, because you really are bringing so many things to the table and your experiences. The other thing is, and while before um, before I'm going to close off, I do have to give one quick plug and I'm not going to be plugging our book all the time, but Alejandra (laughs) has one of the best stories of our careers together that's in there. I'm not going to give a spoiler alert, but hers is in, um, you know, 
a part that's like, I can't believe that happened. And I just want everyone to know that if for nothing else, she will tell you that story and it's just wonderful. And it shows what basically a funny and resilient and, and, you know, very, very amazing kind of thing, but it was just one of the most fun things that we received. So, you know, thank you for that. And thank you so much for, for joining and not, you know, telling any of, you know, the stories from back in the day. Um, that will come. That's in the sequel. <laughs> so, really appreciate you being here. And on behalf of the Compliance Podcast Network and Mary and I, thanks again. And thank you, Lisa. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review. 